Hello and welcome to this, the seventh episode of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. As ever, you find us ensconced in our secret Missing Episodes bunker, where I'm joined by Paul. Hello. Yes, it's um, it's like we come as a package or something. <clears throat> now, the attentive listener may recall that a little while ago we were having a spot of trouble with some dravins. They were hanging around outside, trying to get their well-manicured mitts on the precious episodes of the vault. Yes, our base has been well and truly under siege, to be honest. Well, that's the strange thing, Tim. <laughs> well, as you know, I, I popped out earlier to get some crudités with terra masalata to enjoy while we record and they've they've gone well you mean you ate them on the way back no you idiot the dravins they've completely vanished <laughs> really <laughs> oh, what did i say patience will win the day and it has yeah, but um only uh yeah well there's something else something else out there it's uh well it's a 12 foot high wooden statue of a horse really <laughs> I love horses. I really do. I'm completely horse mad, I am. I'm going to go and have a look. Are you? Oh. Well, I'll just uh, crack on, shall I? Well, this episode we're going to be talking about... Paul! Uh, what? Uh, we're talking about the third story of season three, and... Paul! What? Look, I'm going to open the loading bay door and get this in. It's brilliant! Yes, the third story of season three... Sorry about all the noise, listeners. The almost completely missing The Mythmakers by Donald Cotton. So apart from a handful of photographs, a few 8mm clips lovingly preserved by our friend Jan Zabrowski, and a rather scratchy audio... Right. Can we get on with this? Magnificent, Paul. Brilliant. But... What? Not only do we now have this glorious 12-foot-high statue of a horse in the bunker, we also have uh, something else. What? Well, I noticed in its lovely belly there was a little hatch, so I opened it up and, would you believe it, our episode's guest was inside waiting to surprise us. Good Lord. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Our guest is um, dusting himself down. I first met this man... I don't know, um, way back when he was merely a professional comedian with a one-man <laughs> Doctor Who-themed show. And now, you all know him as that... Uh, Tedious? <laughs> national treasure of the Doctor Who world, Mr. Toby Haydock. <laughs> Hello, Toby. Well, it's nice to be here, uh, albeit quarantined as I am. And I'm not going to take a selfie of me unmasked in front of you and go, look at me being a big man, uh, not wearing a mask. <laughs> I was thinking, because I've been watching people doing that today on Twitter and getting furious, so I'm, I'm thinking tomorrow I'm just going to put up pictures of sort of Paris and Babylon and Mars <laughs> and just go, I'm, I'm, I'm not wearing no mask. Um, but anyway, that's that, we might be frighteningly topical. I'm sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get, let's go back to Troy. So, Toby, as well as being... Uh, big fan of um 60s who in particular mm. you're i think you're also um quite interested in the whole missing episode side of the show aren't you just like us and our listeners i think it's what separates us from the other fans you know the, the star trek but they even have the cage <laughs> yeah. uh, the prisoner it's all there 
Um, I mean, there aren't really Quatermass fans, although you know, as such, um, there's not a fandom for Quatermass, as it were. But you know, most most stuff uh, and Quatermass is missing the, the the last four episodes of the Quatermass experiment. But at least with Quatermass, you know, it's not coming back because they were never recorded. Although there were clips recorded, possibly for trailers, but we won't get into that. I just want to stop <laughs> the letters. There's a possibility. Look, if you think you know, I know more than you do, listener, because I've I've <laughs> I've got the list of how long the bits of film were. Anyway, look, the Quatermass, ex- the Qua- definitely Quatermass Experiment Six is d- no filming uh, or recording of any sort was done for. We're not going to see the Quatermass Experiment, but there's always there's always with Doctor Who in the. I mean, in the early days of me discovering internet forums, I spent an ungodly amount of time just you know somebody going oh i think i've seen the whole of the space pirates in a car boot cell and of course this person offered no proof whatsoever but it would take at least three days before somebody went i've checked that person's ipl they're actually a madman in an asylum uh it's not true <laughs> and still somebody go just because he's a madman in asylum doesn't mean he wasn't at a car boot cell and has the space pirates quick before they before they lobotomize him we've got to rescue the space pirates um so there's always i, I think I, you know, when the when the internet forums sort of started, I I would, I, I, oh God, it would make my day if there was somebody put up a picture of a film can. I'm sure there was a mission to the unknown at one point. Uh, there's somebody look, there's a film can, and go, well, how can they possibly have done that? Apart from write mission to the unknown on a sticker and stick it on a film can, <laughs> um, and and so, uh, but I remember, I'm sure I remember reading in a Matrix database, it was in an old Doctor Who magazine where the the concept reared its head that there were episodes that were missing, which, of course, was a great tragedy, even though at that time there was no such thing as home videos and the chances of seeing them or them being repeated were practically zero. Again, it's that hope. It's that hope. If uh, And that hope was dashed that uh, suddenly somebody would see sense that there'd be a primetime repeat season from the beginning. Um, but then, of mm-hmm. course, when when videos came out, it was suddenly, oh, well, if this stuff uh, still existed, we could have it. But I think it's, even with Doctor Who back, I mean, it was great in the lean years when missing episodes returned, because that's all we had. But even with Doctor Who back, I think the chance of... Archaeology, I think, is, is more fascinating than predicting the future. Because you sort of know... the. The future's out of your hands in a way, whereas the past might be there, lurking somewhere. And mm. and I and I love the idea that we might uncover, as we discovered with tw- the, you know episode, something as innocuous as episode two of the Underwater Men. It's so many little bits that you couldn't have anticipated of Patrick Troughton's performance, um, or just you get an episode that makes you think completely differently of a, a of a story that has a. I mean, the 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 enemy of the world underwent went a renaissance when. We realised it wasn't just about a man being guarded in a corridor because it's easier <laughs> to guard him there. Um, uh, and so I think they are endlessly fascinating. There's tragedy there. There's dashed hope. There's there's a little bit of potential for excitement. There's, there's something to be furious about. Uh, there's something to imagine. And, and all sorts of levels of excitement. You know, yes, we might get an episode or two back. We might get a clip. Somebody might show an episode of Was It Tomorrow's World that happens to have on a Sunday on BBC Two, and there's a clip of Power of the Daleks there that nobody knew was still around and nobody noticed until that 
they, it wasn't Tomorrow's World. It was some, remember that the, the, there was a clip from Power of the Daleks yep. that turned up in a <clears> show <throat> that was yep. just shown on the telly. And you go, so everybody thinks we've covered all the bases and then it's discovered on on the telly uh, on BBC Two. So all of those stories of finding things and some really dogged individuals uh, finding episodes or, or, you know, the sensor clip story is an absolutely fantastic one. So, yes, it's endlessly fascinating, as you'll uh, have, have understood from you asking me a question that was one sentence and me answering it <laughs> with an answer that has lasted for several days. Thank you. We all agree. All human, all human life is here. What we'll do is we'll have a chat about the background and some of the themes that run throughout the Mythmakers and have a look at some of the characters. And then we'll have a review of the story and give our opinions on it, although we'll have covered much of that ground by the time we get to to there. And then we'll talk about the missing episodes aspect. So it's the first story of the third production block and the third to air in season three we have a one-off directorial appearance by michael leaston smith who was never to be seen again do we know why he was never seen again well leaston smith was an interesting fellow because he did work on uh, the quatermass serials he was ah. the lighting guy on the quatermass experiment i think and then he jumps to be a, a production assistant on Quatermass 2 and he gets the Doctor Who story with a horse in it and he was quite a horse's guy in fact I was <laughs> and I think he was from good money and had connections and I couldn't find everything that I that I had I'd got some emails kicking about but there was a suggestion that he was very well connected and then I got uh, an email out of the blue from somebody who I sadly now have discovered has died recently at the age of 101. I got a I got an email from a, a, a lighting guy called Headley Versey, who at the time was he said you won't have heard of me, but I'm 99. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and I and I started working at uh, the BBC in Alexandra Palace. And he said I seem to recollect that the young Michael Leaston Smith mysteriously joined my camera group on OB Unit 2 for a very short period during 1947 to 1950 when he told me he had negotiated the TV rights for Aintree. He became a floor manager after which I lost track. So, so yeah, I think there's something to do with the TV rights to showing Aintree and horse stuff that got him in to telly and, and right. perhaps explain this odd career path where he went from being lighting guy to floor manager and, and eventually became a director. And I'm sure Derek Ware, uh, the stunt guy, told me that he was very much a sort of jodpers kind of guy who uh, I mean Derek, if Derek wanted to put somebody down he'd sort of say he's the guy that didn't even have a television and I don't know if that's quite true but it, the, the inference was that he was more interested <laughs> in his in his horses and, and he was a bit uh, above the old telly thing so I don't know whether that explains why he never did uh, Doctor Who again but uh, but certainly he must have I bet, I bet the Trojan horse was well shot that's all I can say <laughs> <laughs> anatomically accurate to the mm. tiniest detail it's a shame he didn't do any more because, as far as we can tell, he did a he did a super job. But oh well, um, it's the it's the first story commissioned by Donald Tosh in his own right, and we've tracked the progress of script editors and producers over over the years in our previous episodes. And Donald Cotton had worked with Tosh when they were both actors. I think he'd done quite a lot of um, adaptations of 
Greek myths in the theatre on a radio. So that's probably an idea he brought to the table. And that wasn't where it ended. He also brought in some people he'd worked with before, including Max Adrian and um, the composer, Humphrey Searle. Humphrey Searle, yeah, did the music for his, for his previous excursion into Troy. It's almost like he sort of went, well, I, I, shall I just do that again? So <laughs> tell us more about um, his previous venture into this arena. Is it, does it tell the same slice of the Iliad? or? I don't know, to be honest. I don't know because I've not managed to read or find or, or get anything on it. No, I, I was being slightly cheeky to suggest he just uh, he was just repeating himself but yeah. but he's he was certainly well versed in the material and uh seemed to think he'd he'd do a of all things to go to go well when i do it for doctor who you go ah well if you're doing it for doctor who maybe you do a version that involves some sort of <laughs> alien incursion you go no no i'll just put comedy in it i'll just i'll just make it a bit of a, a bit of a laugh so because because i suppose you could have easily told uh you know uh, uh had a, a an alien explanation for the for the giant horse and the duping of the trojans and and all of that but he just decided to basically do a, sort of anticipate black adder and do a kind of you know mm comically drawn version of it's not really well is it history yeah it is history troy did exist but i'm i'm, I'm presuming <laughs> the gods weren't involved in its downfall controversial um, <laughs> so this is the first instance arguably that we have the wiles tosh vision in that this was commissioned before wiles was fully on board but he was probably shadowing verity lambert and as i said it's tosh's first commission in his own right and i don't know where it came from but we see the first of their vision for this sort of highbrow comedy a sophisticated story ending in tragedy well didn't the bbc early press release warning describe it as the most sophisticated set of scripts the program has ever done i'm sure i'm sure they were aware of their sophistication hmm which, which thing some of the jokes are deliberately <laughs> terrible. It's an interesting take on what what sophistication is. It's very sort of, it's full of the sort of jokes you imagine people told each other yeah. at, at Oxford and Cambridge over breakfast. So <laughs> That's BBC sophistication. That's the only kind that matters. I mean, I have to say, it's the sort of stuff I love, but <laughs> but I did Latin at school. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I'm not, I don't think the humour would have translated... Right to everybody watching in a way that perhaps, say, the jokes of the time meddler might, for example. Um, sure. Uh, I think you have to, you know, you have to have been quite well versed in what they're upturning in order to appreciate what the jokes are. That said, it's got some really good jokes in it. There is a bit of a spread of types of comedy, isn't there? But um, some of them are, you have to know the references and others pretty much anyone could get. Yeah. I mean, I... I have to say, because the time meddler, for example, I know is very popular and people love it. And it always, uh, I, I, I think the Mythmakers is so much more fun than the time meddler because the time meddler has Peter Butterworth being funny, but everybody else is relatively mm. anonymous uh, and a bit dull. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, there aren't many quotable <laughs> lines from Ulf and Sven the Vikings, but I think I think everybody in uh, everybody in the Mythmakers is a bit of a hoot. And the Romans is funny, but I think they're thicker and faster. And again, sort of slightly more self-consciously clever, clever jokes in uh, in in the Mythmakers. It's certainly the funniest Doctor Who story, most consistently funny Doctor Who story to date. And I think that the Tosh and Wiles way of doing things was was self-consciously a bit more sort of highbrow and eclectic. And that's what I think makes season three 
really really interesting and i think it's a yeah. it's it's um it's the the palette of season three is is i think broader than the the previous two and i think it's endlessly fascinating but that might be because it's missing and we just like stuff we can't have yeah but when you look at the romans a lot of the comedy revolves around william hartnell laughing at himself and giggling maniacally um whereas in this one and with the gunfighters as well he plays the straight man a lot more doesn't he and so people can bounce their humor off him and it works he works better in that regard and he's better at it frankly and and in the Ro- in the romans you've got a funny nero but you know that the, the a lot of the other and and Lacusta's quite funny but a, a lot of the character you know there's no fun to be had with ian and delos whereas when cotton <laughs> when cotton writes the book uh he makes them really annoyed with each other and Ascaris the, yeah, the the yeah. soldier is so Cotton seems to revel more in 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 making his sort of guest archetypes all rather yeah. funny, and every guest part is worth playing. You know, do we think this is I mean, is this just because Cotton's a better writer than Dennis Spooner, or could Dennis Spooner have done that? And it's a more a question of what they're given license to do by the producer. Is is it the program evolving and the comedy is being introduced bit by bit? You don't suddenly introduce comedy by writing a, co- a story where the entire guest cast are funny, do you? So it's it's just the program taking one step, one tentative step forward at a time until we get here. And yes, I don't think you could have done this earlier either. I mean, the Romans was a bit of a culture shock, and I and I don't think they were over the moon with it at the time. And you look back on it now and go, oh no, it's great fun. It's showing that Doctor Who can 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 have a laugh. I think it's only when you when you when you have a mold can you break it and. So you have to give the, the, the you know, the early episodes a, a, a bit more of a break where they're perhaps more tentatively finding their feet. But then they do very, very different stories then. So I might be talking hogwash because the, the Reign of Terror self-consciously got funny stuff in it. But this is an out-and-out spoof. It's a spoof rather mm. than a it comedy, is, yes. actually, in a way that the others aren't so much, maybe. It's, it's the first historical to delve back into the era of mythology, myths and legends, uh, etc. It isn't the prescriptive history lesson of Marco Polo, say, or the Aztecs, which is a change in tone. We've talked often about what the 60s audience are being assumed to have a better grasp of in terms of history. You're going to ask your question again, aren't you? Paul, yes. did you do this at school? No. No, I only went to, I only went to a grammar school, and we had the Latin. I had the Latin, but not the classics. Okay, I, I, I did a little Twitter poll, and twenty percent of people covered this sort of stuff at school, which is about the same mm. response we get for the other historical eras we've covered. To be honest, I think because I mean I touched on the Odyssey in drama. So I sort of went near it. I didn't do classical studies, so we didn't we didn't touch it. Toby, did you do it at school? I did do it at school. I did. I mean, I did. Um, I did Latin and I did Greek for a bit. I, uh, and uh, and so uh, the stories were familiar to me. Although that said, the stories were familiar to me. Uh, but this story, the Mythmakers, I didn't actually experience in its proper form until the soundtrack cd came out because mm. uh, yeah. uh which was re- so uh, in terms of my journey through doctor who it's practically the last bar i think reign of terror four and five it's the last episodes i experienced in as close to the form 
that they were in when they were broadcast. So you know, right. yeah, I'd read I'd read all the target yeah. novels, but the target novel for this is so different and also one of the best. And I hated it as a kid because it was so <laughs> self consciously really? different. For, I didn't get any of the jokes. Uh, it was so it was so self consciously different from uh, you know I when that when those books were coming out, the target books to me had to be. It's a bit like the argument being had about animations at the moment it needed to replicate what was on the telly as much as possible <laughs> because i wanted to capture the experience of watching what was on the telly and of course cotton goes absolutely all over the place um, <laughs> uh, but it's probably the the target novel i've read the most i think it's terribly funny uh, there's some brilliant uh, jokes and the characters are great um uh but but and so i i knew that and it was only so what about 2002 maybe i'm just trying to think when i was in i remember where i was i was living in salford in 21 douglas street and that's where i listened to it for the first time uh and of course it's so very different uh yeah. from from the book that it was all pretty much new to me and i absolutely loved it um and still do um but so in a way up until that point the, the the stories it's spoofing um, were more familiar to me than the actual Doctor Who version. I, I have a copy of the Iliad on the shelf, a beaten up old Penguin edition, and I've attempted it about three times and I have given up. It is insoluble to me. I just can't get beyond... Yeah, beyond a, a dozen or two pages. We did the Odyssey more. We did the, the sequel, the sequel more, where, you know, therefore the ending that Odysseus gets in the story um so although he appears triumphant and you sort of go oh he's got away with it actually all the stuff people say to him at the end um comes true and whereas in the odyssey you know the hero returns and it doesn't end up well for him and it's a bit sad and it's a bit difficult mm. um in, in doctor who terms the the drunken old pirate murderer uh, does get his comeuppance off screen later you know so and also, I don't think Troilus and Cressida is particularly beloved of schools for teaching. I remember distinctly when we listed, you know, the, the comedies and the tragedies. It, it's in that third category, isn't it? Problem, Problem plays. plays. Yeah. Yes. It's not, it's, not, it's not a Shakespeare I've seen live. Um, no. Don't know very well at all. And I assume none of us have, have actually studied <laughs> the Chaucer, Tro Troilus and Cressida, which is probably what he based it on. If I just try and summarise where Donald Cosson got this from, maybe you can tell me if I've got this right, Toby. I mean, it's, it's basically the main plot comes from the Iliad, which is the end of the ten-year siege of Troy. The horse bit isn't in Shakespeare or Chaucer. For some extraordinary reason, Chaucer decided to make it to write a courtly romance rather than including the bit with all the action. Yes. <laughs> and so the, the Troilus and Cressida romance comes from Shakespeare. And it really is... He has merged the two <laughs> to the extent that <laughs> that it's faithful to either of them but that's a kind of clue as to its tonal dissonance as well uh, you know not only is it is its uh, uh, subject matter been picked from very different sources the treatment of that subject matter is almost i mean it's almost night and day which i sort of don't mind but i I can understand people who are less perhaps well predisposed to it. Going, it's almost like there's two different stories going on at once, particularly in episode four, where he suddenly goes, I'm going to write this completely differently. But, I mean, if if you're telling, uh, you know, it's it's, I mean... It's almost, I hate to use the word, it's almost meta though, isn't it? If he's doing if he's doing something about making myths, 
he can sort of s- spin his yarns from wherever he wants to get them from, really. I think that's that's fine. I think the title itself is a clue yeah. to what you're going to get and how you should read it, isn't it? Yeah. Behind the scenes, there are some interesting things going on. Maureen O'Brien hasn't been well loved by Wiles, John Wiles, and she returned from her holiday and found out via the issuing of the script that she was no longer required after the Mythmakers. Yeah, the Hartnell era is pretty brutal for the way it disposes of its regulars. Maureen O'Brien comes back from holiday and goes, you think, well, God, that's pretty awful, but hopefully they learn from that. I know it's a different production team, but, you know, Jackie Lane is dropped halfway through (laughs) episode two of The War Machines. Um, And then, you know, and replaced with funky new Ben and Polly, who everybody loves. Uh, And then the Scotsman, Jamie, comes in and they go, oh, let's get rid of them as well. I mean, uh, and and the Doctor himself, Hartnell. I mean, we think of the the showbiz industry being cutthroat now. There was not much sentiment around Broadcasting House when when Doctor Who was being made in the 60s. Yeah, indeed. And uh, Katerina. um... (laughs) Who's, who's, who's... Who films her death scene before I know, exactly. anything else. <laughs> yeah, I hope she didn't think she was getting a long 20-episode run and then gets handed her first scene and it's her trampoline death scene. <laughs> well, and, of, and of course, when you're reading the history, when you're getting the, the, the Doctor of Celebration and the 20th anniversary magazine and it's got the companions and it says, Katerina joins in the Mythmakers <laughs> and dies in the Dalek Master Plan. Well, when you first see that, you go, well, the Mythmakers is four episodes, the Dalek Master Plan's... 12 so at least that's about (laughs) she's in it three or four and then you go oh no she gets killed quite early on in the Dalek master plan you go okay she's only in it a a couple of months and then I read an interview with Adrian Hill in Doctor Who magazine she said oh when I joined um all these lovely people were leaving like Max Adrian and Francis right you go no they they weren't leaving they were were guest stars they weren't leaving like you you, hang on they they were in the midst and then you then go she's not in it till episode four <laughs> she, so she's not. It's not like she's Nissa in Keeper of Traken, and they go, "Oh, this character's great. Let's let's keep her on." Or uh, you know, or somebody that makes such a, or Jamie, indeed, in the Highlands is yeah. This is this is somebody who, who who's got promise on paper as a character. So let's keep them on. They introduce her as late as they possibly can and kill her <laughs> as pretty much as soon as they possibly can. Do we have any idea what that was all about? Because we're going to probably going to have to come back to this again in the next instalment but if the point of the character whichever character this was was to die in episode three or four of, of master plan and make an impact then it's very odd to have it be somebody that we only meet it, it, they could have picked any other character in the myth makers and brought well, them forward uh, or they could have kept on Maureen o'brien which would have had an extraordinary impact but they go this Strange, unsatisfactory middle. It's route. really odd, isn't it? Yes, if they'd killed Vicky in episode four of the Daleks' master plan, that would have been harrowing and brilliant. And I, I mean, I wonder if we're not undergoing some sort of group hallucination, and that Katerina, <laughs> and that Katerina isn't really a. I mean, interestingly, in the billings, like the Radio Times, build Doctor guest stars, companions. Sometimes the other way around, but often it went Doctor, especially this period main guest stars companions but sometimes it goes companions guest stars mixture of the two adrian hill doesn't get any form of star regular billing in myth makers or in i mean 
Pauline Collins does for the faceless ones. She gets sort of companion billing for the for 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 the episodes that Ben and Polly aren't in of the faceless ones. Her and Fraser Hines are lumped together as the sort mm. of un, underneath the sort of guest stars, as it were. Adrian Hill is just on the cast list, so uh, yeah, she's in five. She and she's in fewer episodes of the Dalek Master Plan than. Than than Brett Vion, I think, is it? Or when does Nicholas Courtney die? Yeah, yeah so, so Brett Vion could be a companion for the amount of time he spends with the TARDIS crew charging around time and space. You know, I mean, it, people often suggest, or at least they used to, that um, she was supposed to be a proper companion, but the production team realised that a character from that far back in history wouldn't work because she constantly, she'd never understand anything that was going on. So they quickly wrote around again. But does that bear? Does that stand up to scrutiny or not? I mean, maybe that was the plan and that, that makes sense to me that you'd go, well, let's work on, let's have a, a companion from the past. Uh, uh, oh, no, it's not working. But if if you get to the point where you decide that isn't working to the extent that by the time you start filming that character, you're filming the bit where they die, <laughs> that, that yeah. would suggest to me that it's not, you haven't hired a, a, a regular actor and then gone, oh, mate, this isn't working out, see ya. It's more. We were thinking of doing something with this, but it's not going to happen. You know, it's yeah. The 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 very fact that the first bit she does and she's introduced so late into the story suggests that they decided she was a bad idea fairly early on. And this was a, an incredibly unhappy production for William Hartnell. So uh, in no particular order, but he found out that Wiles was in sole charge apparently as a surprise when he got back from his holiday, and that Verity had indeed cleared off and they hadn't been getting on and legend has it that William Hartnell would act enfeebled or just go over John Wiles's head whenever they had a dispute he then found out that Maureen O'Brien had gone which unsettled him furthermore he was injured by a, a, a mole crane in the studio which injured him and bruised his shoulder then he was mocked by Francis DeWolf after fluffing a line. And uh, legend has it that, that Francis DeWolf switched the line to, instead of here, have a ham bone, it's here, ham, have a bone. <laughs> and then finally, William Hartnell's aunt died during the production as well, who had raised him effectively. So it was an incredibly unhappy uh, production. But as far as we can tell, it doesn't necessarily show, but he had a torrid time of it, bless him. Yeah, it does. It it does seem to, but I don't think it does show in his performance. I think he's very, very good in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, he certainly do- doesn't seem to have uh, enjoyed it. And then we have the, we have the perhaps apocryphal tale that Tosh uh, <laughs> from Donald Tosh that he said he rewrote the script to ensure that Hartnell didn't appear alongside Max Adrian for fear of being outshone. Uh, well, there was that. There was also uh, it's also been used as an example of 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 Hartnell's supposed prejudice because Adrian was Jewish and gay. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I remember reading that in the dark days of fan writing when uh, you know all sorts of hogwash was flown about as though it was fact. I've not seen that backed up by any sort of reliable source. And in Jessica Carney's book, she she says it's un, unlikely and that he'd worked mm. with Adrian before and they'd got on, but that it was more likely that he was upset about his aunt. And, and the script is very unlikely in terms of the story that, 
that the Doctor would have met Priam anyway because he comes out of the yeah. horse and, and they all get killed. So it would have only been a scene anyway and that's I, I'm sure they could have both stood it had they both hated each other. It's From what I understand it, Adrian was a bit upset that Hartnell was a bit off with him, but um, mm. that could have been for any number uh, of reasons and, and not I don't think for the for the the popular one of going oh yes let's let's let this will be this will be good if we can make this this because Hartnell was a terrible bigot or whatever apparently the early drafts or synopses or treatments or whatever show that there was no adjustment made in this regard anyway well Donald Tosh I, I did a couple of things with and he was very nice but my experience is that if not, if everyone else was dead, and Donald Tosh <laughs> could say he did a thing, he he said he'd done it. In in fact, I write obituaries for the Guardian, and we looked into whether I would I would do do an obit for the Guardian. I talked to other obituaries. We we hang around online together talking about the dead um and there's a very and and there's honor amongst obituaries and you know uh, if if you're struggling to find out you know what somebody's mother's maiden name was i i will email anthony haywood who does other and goes are you writing so and so for the telegraph i don't suppose you know where they went to school or whatever and we help each other out and and he's not a doctor who guy at all and uh uh, and he, so he very kindly lets me do the Doc Two people for the Guardian, and he does them for the Telegraph. And he said, I, "He said, I've, he said, what, what, how much of this is true?" And I said, "Well, I'm not sure." And then he kept because because Donald Tosh said, you know, he'd he'd come up with he'd passed he'd read Coronation Street when he was at Granada, <laughs> and he'd passed that on. And 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 Anthony came back to me after about a day and said, "All of the things that he said he did, he can't have done." Uh, and uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure they even I'm not sure they even ran the Telegraph one or. So, uh, you know, that whole thing of Terry Nation turning up with 12 pages of Dalek Master Plan (laughs) and Donald writing it all, especially the really good bits that everybody likes. Marvick Chen was all mine, you know. I, I, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to say I, I, I'm not sure that is backed up by, by the facts or at least what facts we have. (laughs) There's, there's probably elements of truth. That script editors rewrote and had to do a lot of donkey work. But I, but I, I think perhaps he's, he's bigged up his part. I don't know where best to fit this in, but we might as well mention it now. The episode titles, um, which are famous and rather clever and perhaps too clever for their own good sometimes, but amusing nonetheless. So the first episode is Temple of Secrets, which I think is a, a pretty nice joke in itself. But it was originally going to be called Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, and I, isn't it in the book, isn't chapter one called... Zeus ex machina which is which is a, oh, a pun good. on deus ex machina which is even funnier oh. <laughs> incredible uh, yeah. small small profit quick return which, that's a cracking uh, joke uh, that's a cracking joke <laughs> you even worked it into your stand-up it's it's probably. in moth state my doctor who scarf yeah yeah <laughs> uh, which is the bit where i try and show that doctor who's clever and it always got to laugh. People like it. it's terrible getting getting laugh from somebody else's joke. And also, fact fans, uh, it's the Doctor Who episode uh, that coincided with the birth of Steve Roberts, who sadly didn't grow up to get to clean up the pictures of it because they never turned up again. <laughs> but uh, pe- perhaps one day. 
Death of a Spy has a little apocryphal tale attached to it, but apparently this was imposed by John Wiles, and Cotton said, but there isn't a Death of a Spy in it, so he had to do a quick rewrite and off-Cyclops. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, again, that's one of that. that there's a brilliant <laughs> chapter in the Doctor Who file that, that Donald Cotton... Well, purport, it purports to have been written by him. I think it was put together by somebody else and after a discussion with, with Donald Cotton. I, I discovered it was like finding out Santa Claus didn't exist because that chapter by Cotton is very, very funny and self-deprecating and, and witty. But uh, again, it's one of those stories that I don't think bears much scrutiny. Right. It's certainly, they did want to call the, the episode, Is There a Doctor in the Horse?, um, yeah. <laughs> which which is, of course, a great title. Uh, I then think he went... Well, they then called it Death of a Spy, and Cyclops is in it. He's quite important to the plot. But I think he went, well, hang on, Cyclops is in it, and he doesn't say anything, so that will make quite a good joke. I think that's Donald Cotton telling a joke, and it's now become a fact. It's not a fact, it's a joke. Sometimes sometimes jokes don't have to be factually correct, which is going to, I'm going to etch on my tombstone ev- because it's what I think every time I do a Facebook update about something to do with Doctor Who that's a joke, somebody will point out that it's not a fact. And that's because it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, um, <laughs> finally on the titles, every time I watch this, I pick up something new and I might be, I might be thick as mince to have only just notice this but the myth makers itself works on two levels i didn't know this tell me if, I, if tell me if this is bleeding obvious but it's based in the era of myths and legends so this is the era in which myths are made the myth makers but the doctor is also making a myth himself yeah what, isn't he yeah he he well and it's that it's that you know he spends the, the gag of course is that he spends the whole of is episodes 2 and 3 avoiding doing the bit that happened in the story because he thinks it's a load of old nonsense and then he ends up having to do that and it becomes the, the you know it becomes the fact which is in itself a great gag must be one of the very few doctor who stories with a metatextual title Let's whiz through the characters uh, and see if we can track any developments or anything interesting we have to say about the characters in this. So, the Doctor. So, having admitted in the Time Meddler that history can't be changed and having this whole story based on the threat of history being changed, he now finds himself creating it himself. I know Toby's already touched on it, but he also spends a lot of the time being very similar to the Time Meddler in that he's talking about Flying machines, for God's sake. It's exactly the sort of thing Peter Butterworth would have done. Well, Donald Cotton's doctor is quite curious in that, I mean, he he starts off sort of fairly clueless. He doesn't know who anybody is, which is, we're not used to that with the doctor. We're used to him sort of putting a finger in the air and going, oh, the Duke of Northumberland at this time is Jim Northumberland, whose (laughs) favourite horse is called Samuel. Um, Here he lands and he sees Achilles get killed and he goes, I don't really know. And he's a bit sort of doddery and stupid. But then he does these funny asides. He sees through the pomposity of, of the characters. So depending on the best joke, Cotton gives him sort of slightly different roles. He's either idiotic stooge, which he also is in the gunfighters a bit, you know, yeah. standing in yeah. the cell, playing with his gun and calling Wyatt a Mr. Werp. So, again, the idea is that Doctor Who, who knows everything, doesn't know who Wyatt Earp is. <laughs> yeah. But he does know about 
the horse and and that he needs to stop it. So it's a sort. It's a as if you were to do it in an in in a, in a comedy show where you start off getting your jokes from everybody having one attitude and then to get different jokes halfway through suddenly change everybody's attitude. People would go, that's not a very consistent approach to comedy. But um, I don't care because I really like the Myth Makers and it's very refreshing for <laughs> Doctor Who. And I sort of think Hartnell carries off both quite well. I think he works quite well as this sort of slightly doddery bloke who's not quite sure what's going on. And is the first thing he says when he comes out of the TARDIS isn't so, isn't it something like you, you mustn't kick a man when he's down so he doesn't even know he doesn't even know that a bloke's just died horribly do you know what I mean or if he does he doesn't quite know how to re- respond to it like you know people should um, he responds to a death as if it's part of a comedy um, yeah and, and that yeah. happens quite a lot i mean poor old paris does it as well when cyclops gets killed uh and he goes oh dear what a shame that's just been killed um but (laughs) but then the doctor is quite knowing and and perceptive when he when he needs to be but but hartnell does that as well he's he you know he 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 stands up against odysseus or he he sees through achilles rather rather nicely and he gets a he gets a hard time from from Peter Purvis and so on about you know Agamemnon and all that sort of thing. I am not a dog, but I think he he carries off some tricky dialogue in there, and you can just picture him managing this comedy the same way he does in the Gunfighters. You know, impeccable physical timing and all the rest of it. He's very much at home. Mm. I was just thinking, even even the way the other characters see him. I mean, the first thing that um, Achilles does is is refer to him is assumed as uses appeared to him as a was it a dirty old beggar? Dirty old, yeah, it's a great joke. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, not much to say about Stephen, only now that, that, that Spooner's characterisation of him as this sarcastic so-and-so is now put into the script and the Doctor forbids him from going outside because he'll be too, he'll be too sarcastic with everyone. I thought that was quite fun. Yeah, and, and Purvis is, Purvis, Peter Purvis is consistently good in Doctor Who. I don't think, yeah. he, I don't think he gets enough credit um, uh, because his character has to adapt to, and, and this particularly happens in season three, to the basically <laughs> different genre that Doctor Who is every week, uh, uh, and he and he never comes up short. I think he's great in. I think he's great every time, even when he's doing some, you know, daft comedy as as he sometimes has to do in the in the gunfights. I think he's he's game. He throws himself uh, into. It shows why he was a good Blue Peter presenter because he throws himself into everything he's he's confronted with. But actually, also he's a really good actor with good dramatic chops. So uh, yeah. I, I think he's I think he's one of the unsung heroes of Doctor Who, Peter Purvis. I think he's really good. He has some great comic lines in this too. Yeah, his woo- wooing of Paris is very good, where he where he sort yeah. of you know he challenges Paris to a fight and, and sort of ye- yields to and goes, oh you should you should you know why don't you take me because pr- I'll I'll, te- I'll tell everybody that we'll you know because we're always talking around the Greek camps about how you're the lion of Troy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's always brave, um, Stephen, thrusting himself in danger, but he's not always that clever with it, is he? So it's nice to see him have a few other strings with his bow. Yeah, Vicky. It's Vicky's last appearance. You and I haven't always agreed on Vicky, have we? Because there were some... <laughs> I, I wasn't a, as big a fan at the beginning of, of Vicky as you were. And then when there were certain... I mean, in Galaxy 4, I remember thinking she was being written as rather and played as rather more grown-up than she had been originally. Mm. And you didn't quite see that. Mm. I guess it's fair to say she's been rather inconsistent. 
they acknowledge here that they've aged her up, but that, that may just be because they need to be able to marry her off. So she's nearly 17 now rather than... Was she 15 when she first appears? Something like that. But she's... Although she's sidelined for the first couple of episodes, she gets as much agency she's ever had in the second half, doesn't she? Yeah. She... So um, do we think... Do we think does her justice... This finale. Yeah, well, she sort of grows up, doesn't she? And it's uh, it's it's mm. nicely done the the thing with her and uh, Troy. And it's not too soppy because you know basically she when she when she goes to join him at the end, as far as he's concerned, she's she's betrayed him, you know. And and so there's an obstacle to overcome, even as they're sort of united at the end. And and you know for all the. The Doctor Who thing of I've met this person and now I'm in love with them and they're going to completely change my life. I, th- I think I think they <laughs> yeah. give it a little space to breathe and I think the two of them, the two of them play off each other quite nicely and it's a, it's a sweet change in tone from from all the sort of rather hoary old slapdash that's going on a slapstick that's going on a going, a, going on around it. I think it's very sensitively done. It's a, as endings for companions go. I think it's I think it's quite sweet. Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it described as a, a perfunctory sort of send off for her, but I think it's it's I think it's fine compared to what else we get, especially later L- on. Leela and Andred. Yeah, <laughs> she she gets sort of two and a half episodes to build up the story, and as soon as she emerges from the TARDIS in episode two, I mean, she's renamed Cressida, so that should be a a clue. Um, so uh, you know, I think it's I think it's. In terms of how they deal with most other companion departures, especially in this era, I, I think it's quite a, a meaty and, and worthwhile send-off, personally. Uh, moving on to the rest of the cast. We'll go to Paris first. Barry Ingham. Ali Don from the Dalek film. He's wonderful, isn't he? Isn't he absolutely <laughs> hilarious? I think he's my favourite character in the whole of, of Doctor Who. He's utterly vain and cowardly, charming, cynical, funny. I just think I... he's—he's he's brilliant. He's Bertie Wooster, basically. He's. he's, yeah. he's... I—I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. That's which good. I'm glad. I, I wasn't going to say that in case I was wrong. Which, which for the time, you know, for a tea time kids series that's doing a retelling of the you know the myth of Odysseus and the Trojan War and all that sort of thing to go well what I'll do is how to mix it up and make it fun is that uh, and and Barry Ingham ju- judges it just right it's a great sort of light comedy performance and he doesn't he doesn't send it up too much um you you still sort of believe him and you rather like him is is great it's a hoot and he's he's fantastic there's so many great moments i love when he's hunting down achilles and whispering his name to sort of convince himself that he's actually doing the job but then really doesn't want to be to be heard he does the same sort of thing when he comes across Stephen doesn't he sort of talks himself out of having to fight him it's really funny stuff and Paris has one of the rudest jokes I can conceive of for Doctor Who anyway there's a bit where Cassandra has the dream of the Greek soldiers falling upon her with their swords (laughs) <laughs> and he says i don't think we need much help interpreting that one this is blue well <laughs> tea and, time stuff and it's i think it's the only doctor who story to reference an orgy because uh odysseus has a line about the doctor being as nervous as a picante on her first orgy which is pretty and he also uh odysseus mentions uh, you know shall we have tales of aphrodite which is basically yeah. let's, let's tell each other sexy so it's quite a it's quite a sexy doctor who story the myth makers it, it gets away with doing a few naughty jokes because they're classical references so that's allowed 
<laughs> I suppose we have to mention woe to the house of Priam, oh. woe to the Trojans. It's too late to say woe to those. I've just said it on the. I've just been on a previous podcast on a doctor on a, a, a ah. comedy podcast, and, and by a massive coincidence, the act that was on mentioned that he was doing something. He'd been reading up about Cassandra, so I started talking about this, of course, and I and I did the woe joke, and they all laughed, and I was like, "Well, that's from Doctor Who," <laughs> um, and it is. It's a great. It's too late to say woe to the horse. It's a fantastic gag, and there's the, the, a brilliant trio of of characters there, isn't it? That all bounce to each, off each other. So we've got Paris, and we have Cassandra, played by Francis White who's best known to me from I, Claudius, but I didn't watch Crossroads. And she's in Peppa Pig, apparently. Yes, she's still going strong. And <laughs> she was in May to December as a sort of, you know, moon-rimmed, round moon spectacled, very gentle secretary type. So, uh, so uh, her furious performance in this, which is... Again, in its own way, it's sort of spoofy. She's using her her skills as a classical actress to to sort of take the piss, but without winking to the audience in the way that some yeah. over the top performances in Doctor Who do. Again, I, so she really does the job because Cassandra is sort of quite absurd, but she plays it absurd whilst playing it straight, which I think is a perfect. It's a it's well judged. Uh, yeah. and very entertaining and and if you if you hear the sort of the, the the depth of her voice as she screeches some of the stuff it's 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 really well done yeah um and then of course we have priam max adrian who's fed up of the pair of them as the father uh world worn and weary really cynical but he has some fantastic jokes as well you know like to vicky I, i've always said it's character that counts and not good luck yes <laughs> <laughs> And, and doesn't he say so something like, "I don't worry, I'll, I'll, I won't kill you until I'm good and ready," or something like that? He's, he's... I wish you'd both keep quiet for just a moment. No, <laughs> don't be frightened, child. You shall die when I say so, and <laughs> not, not a moment I... before. <laughs> <laughs> and and Vicky, Vicky comes back with, "Well, that's very comforting." And then yeah. Priam again says, "Now you see, neither of you has the least idea of how to handle children. All you need is a little kindness and understanding." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you know Adrian was was no mean booking for Doctor Who. I mean he was a, he was a you know a, a, sure. a hugely a very highly regarded film and stage actor. So to get him for Who was a bit of a coup. But you you suspect Cotton because Humphrey Searle who did the music you know was also a, a, an old friend of Cotton. Uh, so Cotton I think was probably just you know said will you come and do my Doctor Who and they said yes, which is great. And then on the other side of the the story we have the Greek camp and we. Have have Menelaus and Agamemnon, Agamemnon, I just did a heart on myself then, uh, Menelaus and Agamemnon, and that's a hoot that Menelaus doesn't want Helen back. Oh, <laughs> they're brilliant characters. The, the whole thing about Helen being the most beautiful woman in the world, and that's the that's the great myth-making stuff, and it, you know you don't see it. And, and so, you know, you expect in these things everybody to talk about the most beautiful woman in the world in awe, with wonder, with total understanding of why men could be driven mad to war. And you've got this drunk going, well, it's not, I'd just rather go home, you know. Uh, I think I think Menelaus is hilarious. He's really funny in the book as well. Uh, Menelaus in the book is one of the, f- it's just every line he has is really, really funny. And uh, yeah, it's it's that sort of subverting of the genre that they do, so that, that, yeah. that Cotton does well and the actors, the actors play it very nicely. And, and just to 
round off, I think, on the characters. We, the same way that, that Paris is sort of taken out, of the, <laughs> taken out of the knees by Cotton. We also have Odysseus, who's you know one of the great heroes of Greek mythology, and and here he's presented as a opportunistic bore, yeah, as 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 a drunken pirate, yeah. Who <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Ivor Salter is an actor of great gusto and attack, uh, uh, but the gust the gusto doesn't. <laughs> necessarily stretched to learning his lines uh and, and and i seem to recall maureen o'brien in the commentary for the space museum that he's also in going this this is an actor really struggling to get to the end because he has that thing where you talk like this while you give yourself time to remember how the sentence ends uh and he does a lot of that in the space museum and in the myth, you can hear him in the Mythmakers, sort of just, ah, sort of gonna get there now, you know. And but it is quite entertaining. <laughs> I think we might have given the game away a little bit here, but we, we'll, we'll give our opinions on the story. I'm going to open up and feel free to disagree. I'm going to I'm going to quote Andy off the World Enough in Time podcast. And he says basically if this existed it would surely be everyone's favorite or well up there. And sadly it it never seems to get listed in people's most wanted lists, but I think it's absolutely glorious. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it doesn't exist counts against it, but not everybody no, that's true. comedies. So I don't know how much it would rise up because some people just don't like their Doctor Who jokes in, do they? Well, and, and yet, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there was a poll recently where, and I mentioned it earlier, that the Time Meddler always does. Well, I like the Time Meddler. I like all 60s Doctor Who. But I do sometimes get baffled when stuff that I think is a fairly ordinary example, like the Time Meddler and, and the War Machines, mm. that people go mad over. I go, this is great. Um, and then stuff that's really interesting and sort of different and does crazy things with Doctor Who, like the Mythmakers, um, d- doesn't get so much praise. And I, I, I do think maybe if we could... So it's certainly funnier than the Romans and the Time Meddler. It's mm. two sort of closest allies. But people don't like the gunfighters, and that's very funny. But I think the American setting makes that s- slightly more askew in our mm. in our view, and also the way that history is written, where a lot of people decided they didn't like it b- before they'd even seen it. So they went into it knowing it was the worst Doctor Who story of all time, because that was a fact for at least <laughs> 20 years. Uh, whereas the Mythmakers, nobody really sort of talked about. And as I say, even for me, it, it, was, it was one of the last stories I ever experienced. But uh, yeah, I I wonder if a bit like Enemy of the World, if it, if it turned up, people might go, oh, this is because it's really funny and it's and it's done with gusto and um and and there's never a dull moment. But some people don't like historicals, some people don't like jokes, and that's okay. I guess that's all uh, the rich tapestry. But I I I feel sad for it that it's not yeah. more highly regarded because to me it's a ten out of ten. It's a ten out of ten Doctor Who story for for me. Five wooden horses out of five. <laughs> I, I think ten out of ten is hyperbole, but five out of five. <laughs> I, can, I can go there. Now, you know I like the funnies. So, yes, it's this is, um, yeah, uh, right up the top of my um, list of hoped-for finds, you know, that one mine too. dreams about. Yeah, mine too. So... 
So, as we were just saying, this is, for us at least, a very highly sought-after missing story, but doesn't necessarily have much of a chance of fulfilling our dreams. Um, as we said in the last few episodes, the sales, once we get into season three, are quite low. We, it's only been sold to six countries. I'll just run through that again quickly. There's mm. Australia. We know what happened to their prints. Yeah. There's the outside chance that an occasional ep- episode, an odd episode, might turn up if it was swiped from the pile that came back in 1975, but um, it hasn't yet. New Zealand sent their prints onto Singapore in the early 70s. We're not going to look into that now because we think we might be able to get a complete discussion out of Singapore in a future episode, so hang on to your hats and wait for that one. Ooh. There's Barbados. We know they have no missing Doctor Who. Yeah. It's been checked. They either dispose of their prints or possibly sent them on to Zambia. That's one of John Preddle's theories. And Zambia itself has been thoroughly checked. Nothing there. So that just leaves one final possibility. Do you know where that is, Tim? Is it Sierra Leone? Yes. Sound the Sierra Leone klaxon. Have you been researching? <laughs> Sierra Leone, we're, we're there at last. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm not a geographer. It's not a country I knew much about until, I don't know, was it the end of 2011? Suddenly Doctor Who fans started sounding the Sierra Leone klaxon. You know, I'll give the detail and then I'll, I can probably add something to that, depending on what detail you have. Ooh. Sierra Leone um, television is in itself is quite interesting. <laughs> Founded in 1963, the television angle, uh, by a consortium that included TIE, Television International ah. Enterprises, Put that in your diaries because we'll be coming back to that in a future episode. Doctor Who aired in Sierra Leone from 1967 to 71. Uh, There was an 18-month gap in the middle of that for a military coup. As they do. Quite. And it was a very good regular customer for Doctor Who. They bought almost every story right Mm. through to the smugglers, apart from certain Dalek stories, which are always a bit tricky. Yeah. So, as I was saying, for us missing episode followers who were glued to the forums, it was... December 2011. Great days. Uh, we just had the... Uh, <laughs> do you remember those heady days? Things were so oh, different back I'm, then. Yeah, I'm you sure th- the Savages was at a car boot sale in Wrexham <laughs> and the Tenth Planet episode four was definitely at my Auntie Peg's house because my mate Jim told me at school. Yeah. Something, something real had just happened then. We'd all been... Uh, we had all been in person at the Missing Believed Wiped at the BFI and um, been delighted to see the return of um, Galaxy 4 and Underwater Menace 2. And um, the publicity of those two returns from Terry Burnett brought something odd out of the woodwork. There was a report on the Guardian website forum mm. of all places, some chap who said, Doctor Who, my, my brother-in-law told me he once saw some Doctor Who tapes in Sierra Leone of all places in the early 90s. And fans picked up on this, rushed to the Missing Episode forum to tell Missing Episode Commander-in-Chief Paul Venezes of the good news. And he was very quick to dispel it. No disrespect to Paul at all, but he didn't just dispel it. He came down on it like a house full of bricks. He absolutely said, no, we mustn't discuss this, and there's nothing to see there. We have checked. It was a story of two halves, because he... He acknowledged that there was a possibility that these hmm. stories had been in Sierra Leone later than had previously been assumed. This is the first time I think he revealed publicly that the restoration team had been told of a first-hand sighting of a missing story in the 1980s. 
believed to be the savages. Ah, yes. Now, I have, sin- I have spoken to Paul in preparation Ooh. for, for Ooh. this. And Paul, interestingly, Paul coming down on something like a ton of bricks uh, is always a good sign to me that uh, an incorrect rumour is being squashed because Paul, and I will say this to him and have, um, delights in being enigmatic. So if mm. there's any vague truth in something, Paul will perfectly happily perambulate around it. Mm. Uh, but uh, the story was was that somebody had seen uh, a silver-haired, a white-haired doctor on television (laughs) in Sierra Leone in the early 1980s, and the story that was described sounded a bit like the savages. Well, just to add a bit more detail first, according to Paul Menezes, the season one and two stories would have been bicycled on, but some or all of the season three stories were still believed to have remained in the country, and that was because of the report they'd received of a screening there in the 1980s, which is obviously very convincing to the restoration team, judging by the weights they'd put behind it. But, as I say, it's a game of two halves. Paul went on to note that even if that was the case, that the prints had still been there in the 1980s, they aren't there now because they've been destroyed in 1999 Mm. in the Civil War. Uh, He originally said the entire TV station had been blown up and then later clarified that it was a particular Hmm. storage unit. Yeah, we might have looked at this on a particular forum in 2013, but we couldn't find a mention of the destruction of the TV station nor its facilities. But there was this gramophone library next door which had been blown up. Uh, which isn't to say that there wasn't a shed at the TV station that had been blown up, but it did seem curious at the time. Yeah, and who knows, maybe they kept their film in the gramophone library. Stranger things have happened. Mm. Regardless of what precisely was destroyed, Paul was quite clear there was no film material left and that there was no point rummaging in the rubble. And and bearing in mind that we later discovered that Phil actually had visited Sierra Leone, it's got to be possible that it was Phil's visit that informed Paul's view. Yeah. Well... If all that excitement wasn't enough, there was one more twist in the tale. In 2014, Phil told the world that on his visit he had obtained the Sierra Leone programme traffic logs Mm. and they told him that all the Doctor Who was returned to London in 1974. Mm. Yeah, which, um, you know, is a minor relief and it would mean they hadn't been destroyed as recently as 1999, but that's about all. Mm. Yeah. So yes, that's bringing us pretty much up to date as we're saying Phil's comments had overturned the previous thinking because as Toby said the reason Paul Venezes thought the stories were still there in 1999 was because the restoration team had received a report that a story that had been broadcast there out of contracts and the story in that report was if you're paying attention at home you'll know it was the, <laughs> it was the savages John Peddle pointed out later that the whitehead doctor could actually be John Pertwee, because Sierra Leone acquired the Three Doctors and the Monster of Peladon. Hmm. What? Quite why? Let's get to really continuity-heavy stories. <laughs> um, and and they were bought in 1979 uh, and screened before Sierra Leone Broadcasting Company converted to colour. So they would have been broadcast from Sony Umatic cassette tapes. Um, why dig out old 16mm prints and put them in a projector when you could simply put a cassette in a machine? So if somebody did see a white-haired doctor in Sierra Leone on television uh, more recently, uh, so, you know, late 70s, early 80s, it's more likely probably to have been 
Pertwee and Paul feels that because uh, I, I I said we were I was coming on specifically to talk about the Mythmakers. He says that the Mythmakers and the other story purchased by Sierra Leone at the same time, which is Galaxy Four, the Massacre, the Ark, Celestial Toymaker, Gunfighter, Savages, War Machine, Smugglers, and Mythmakers. He's convinced they were not in Sierra Leone in the 1980s. He mm. says the best options for this material are UK private collectors, ex Enterprises prints that found their way back to Enterprises in the mid-70s and found their way into film collections. So that's that's his view. And it and it seems to be that any any episodes that were sent to foreign stations, um, you know, to tempt people before sales were made for example uh, which is where it's possible that some single episodes came back from were never historicals they were always science sure. fiction stories so the chances of a of a single episode of the myth makers being sent to go here's an example of our series that you should buy are, are probably nil because uh, it's not a sci-fi story on the on the white-haired gentleman appearing on the uh, you know the reminiscence of a white-haired doctor who appearing on Sierra Leone TV, some clever bod on the internet has also found a listing of At the Earth's Core on ah. Sierra Leone TV. So it doesn't take a great leap of the imagination to think it might have been Peter Cushing and getting the roles confused. It's quite Doctor Who-ish, I suppose. Oh, God, yeah, the conflating of sci-fi. When I, whenever I used to tell older people that I was writing about Quatermass, because I've been writing a book about Quatermass for 30 years, you know, the <laughs> amount of wise old men that would say to me, ah, well, I remember it at the time, and what you won't know is it, it actually started on the radio. You go, no, you're thinking of Journey into Space. But okay. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I was there. And you go, yeah, okay. And you haven't thought about it since. I've read everything there is, you know, but, but so, you know, con- conflation of of childhood memories is very easily done by people who are then certain uh, and refuse to change their minds. There is still some unanswered questions on on Sierra Leone to my mind in that Paul would have been presumably um, acting on information from our man Phil Morris on the ground and we know he's been there, he said he's been there, he's issued photographs of having been there and indeed presumably equipment supplied by himself to the station. So we know he's been there. We might speculate that if he's supplied equipment, there might have been some quid pro quo. So he may have got material from there, albeit that he hasn't talked about it yet. And (laughs) he was interviewed by Roving Missing Episodes reporter Toby Haydock a few years ago and I think this is the last he spoke <laughs> on the matter where he talked about the the shed being blown up by the the rebel leader which destroyed a, a certain amount of film but that the the episodes were themselves sent back to London in 1974 so that's the the latest we have from the horse's mouth about it but then curiously and subsequently to that he's he, he's had a phone call from the bellboy in the hotel or something (laughs) (laughs) who found stacks and stacks of films that have leaked out of SLTV into a nearby cinema from which we were very fortunate to see the two BBC Morecambe and Wise episodes a couple or three years ago. So 
I suppose there are still possibilities that something has happened and material has been found that we don't know about. Well, we've had it from the horse's mouth that there are stacks and stacks of films that have been found. So I don't suppose it's beyond the wit of man to suppose that some other BBC material snuck out of the TV station into this purported cinema and and is sitting on a shelf somewhere near Wigan. I just don't feel that we can 100% close the, the Sierra Leone story yet. No, but that that possibility is what maintains our interest, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I've interviewed Phil a few times. I don't know if he's got stuff. Well, he may as well not have it if he hasn't given it back. Mm. If he's going to give it back, then give it back. And if he's <laughs> if he's not, all, all the hints in the world aren't really worth anything. So, um, but I I honestly don't know. I th- I think he's had to be very careful about what he says if stuff is up in the air mm. sure because you don't he doesn't want people Dick. locally to start steaming in or doctor who friends remotely buggering it up by going i'll, I'll give you a thousand pounds for that you know what i mean or whatever i do wonder if that's what happened at the end of 2011 because this rumor about sierra leone popped up at almost exactly the time with hindsight when we know phil was there so i'm sure as, as, although Paul was telling us the truth about this, what he believed then to be the dis- total destruction of this st- station, it can't have ha- hurt that it would have dissuaded any fans from phoning it up. Oh, I see. What well, so uh, any story of a, a place being blown to smithereens will make fans not not bother the station uh, and and let and let Phil get on with any any negotiations that are necessary. Which would be yes, that would be a very good way of doing it. Yeah. It might sound like a sledgehammer to crack a nut, but, you know, fans don't take no for an answer, and I, I can't help... We know it's maybe rubbish, but I can't help thinking, trying to put myself in Phil's mind and thinking the only way he can stop people from phoning the station is to tell them it's not there anymore, there's a big crater in the ground. But, um, you know, that was, that was nine years ago. We're all hopeful for stuff, and, uh, you know, if, if Phil coming back with those, you know, two complete Troutons that were somewhere they weren't supposed to be and also you know 15 years after we'd kind of gone well nothing else is going to come back um you know he's he's the man to turn it up but i find myself in a curious limbo of is he still negotiating stuff now or has he got it and is waiting for the right time but well i don't know but it the fact is we can't see any of it so no true you know i i can't eat dreams So to bring this subject to a close, I suppose with the facts as we know them, regardless of what was destroyed and what wasn't, and what might have been, what else might have been in this um, cinema with Morgan Wise, and what might not have been, it can't be Doctor Who because Phil says he's seen the paperwork to say that they were sent back from Sierra Leone to London in 1974. So happy to draw a line under that one. I'd quite like to know if he'd seen the paperwork that said Morgan Wise was sent back in 1974. <laughs> just to you know, just to absolutely dot the I and cross the T. Well, that concludes our review of The Myth Makers. Toby Haydock, thank you so much for coming and joining us. That was phenomenal. Yes, thank you, Toby. Thank you. I knew you were the man for the job. (laughs) 
So, all that remains is uh, to say thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you want to get in touch, please do. I'm on Twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR. Paul is at Mr. Paul Morris. We have a lovely Facebook page, so have a look for Doctor Who and the Podcasters. And we'll be back with the first part of a two-parter on the Daleks Master Plan. Wow. That sounds like an epic, Tim. Uh, Bye! Bye.